Hello and welcome to Here's Johnny's Reviews and my two-year special podcast. And boy, do I have a doozy for you today. Stephen King's The Shining. No, not the 1980 Stanley Kubrick classic, but the made-for-TV 1997 movie. Yay. This movie was made all because of King's gigantic eagle. He hated the fact that Kubrick made his movie that had little to nothing to do with his book, so he thought he could do much better by sticking it to his work and indeed filming it in the hotel where he got the idea in the first place. The story goes, one night King was lost in an almost empty hotel after a drinking binge and came up with the idea of a supernatural hotel with ghosts aplenty. Anyway, whether or not this is true is not for me to discuss here. I'm here to cover this 1997 3-day TV movie. And straight off the bat, does this have a streak against it? This DVD set, which is bloody impossible to find in Britain, comes with two discs, a normal disc for the ending, and parts one and two on a double-sided disc. I HATE double-sided discs. You never know what side to put down first. In fact, I was a good 20 minutes into the wrong side before I noticed I was watching part two and not part one. Why not have three separate fucking discs? Uh, Moving on. This is the first thing I'm watching this, as at the time I was more of an X-Files fan. The two movies I've covered um, last year or a few years back. Check my archives if you want to listen to the ones. And I was into slasher films and not haunted house movies. So I was stepping to this one with a budget of 25 million and King's favourite lap dog even. Director... In the chair, here it is, 1997's The Shining, starring Rebecca De Mornay, Stephen Webber, Cortland Mead, Melvin Van Peebles, Pat Hingle, Stanley Anderson, and Elliot Gold, directed by Mick Garris. The plot, a recovering alcoholic, down on his luck ex-teacher, takes himself, his wife, and his gifted child to stay in a hotel over the winter months to keep the frost at bay and to try to recover what's left of his marriage. Thing is, the hotel is haunted and Danny's gift is to quote, shine, i.e. have psychic powers. This draws out all the hotel's nasties. Can Danny save his father from his demons? Or is his family doomed to walk the halls forever? And normally, I'd go through this movie scene for scene, but I'm not doing that as this is a bloody six hour fucking movie. And unlike the book, which I've read many, many times, it doesn't start with Jack Torrance's played in this by Steve Webber of Wings fame interview, but he's led down to the boiler by hotel service manager Pete Watson, played by Pat Hingle of Batman 89, Max Mobile Drive, a movie I'm covering next year, and Brewster's Million, as he's shown the temperamental old rust bucket boiler from hell, and much important for later, as he tells him the temperature gauge is for 180, but do not go anywhere near it if it's reading higher than 140. Celsius, that is. Or Fahrenheit, where the hell is it? Move on. He also tells him the scandals of the hotel while showing him the hotel's storeroom. And this is important as in the book, um, but not in Kubrick's movie as it's only touched upon. That the overlook was built on ancient Indian burial grounds. And ever since the hotel was first opened in 1909, has it had its fill of ghosts, demons and indeed scandals. So this is where he gets the idea to write the book from. You know, the all work and no play makes Jack a darn boy stuff? Hmm, not in this. Anyway, he tells him the story of room 217 and the suicide of a young woman in a bathtub, then the previous caretaker who blows it off with a shotgun. So no twins, no, come play with us Danny, forever and ever, just a suicidal caretaker. After this we get shots of the Look Hotel, which in real life is a Stanley Hotel in Colorado. We also see that the lawn Croquet is being played by children, important for much later, and the place still has its guests and is buzzing around with activity. 
During this, do we see Jack is getting shown around by hotel manager Stuart Allman, played by Elliot Gold of Friends, MASH and the Ocean Remakes. He also explains the croquet game to Jack and the man called Horace Derwitt, played by John Durbin, not only invented this version of the of croquet with a much larger mallet and much heavier balls and bigger balls, but he rescued the hotel from ruins in the 1940s. He also explains to Jack he didn't want another alcoholic running his prized hotel, but it seems Jack has connections and that's why he got the job. And much like in the book, something Kubrick didn't go into at all. Do we hear just how far Jack has fallen? He was a teacher in a prestigious prep school until one day he beat up a pupil and lost his job, all because he loved the demon drink. Allman is not pleased one little bit, until Jack assures him he's going to AA meetings, and when the snow hits, he'll call his sponsor every day. Also, he has a plethorite, so several months of quiet will do him great. So 15 minutes in, and we meet Wendy Torrance, played by Rebecca de Morney of The Hand That Rocked the Cradle, Whiskey Business, Netflix's Jessica Jones, and Lucifer. Also, Danny Torrance, played by Cotland Mead of A Bug's Life and Disney's Recess. And I will not comment on his buck teeth that never seem to be covered by his lips, and I guess that's why he's called Doc. Unlike the Cubic movie, do we see Wendy knows about Danny's gift and seems to be perfectly fine with it? In flashbacks, do we see what Jack did to Danny after Danny spilled ink all over his play? And then yanked him up and yanked his shoulders out of the socket. But in this one, it's a broken arm. Ooh, get in. And this was the last straw for Wendy, as she puts down the ultimatum. Either Jack gets help for his drinking, or she'll leave him with Danny forever. And indeed, that was, I think it was nine months ago. So he's now been off the drink for nine months. As Danny's playing outside on a tree swing, uh, does he get a psychic vision of his imaginary friend, Tony, played by Will Hornet of Sandlot and Ghost and Machine. He's floating in midair next to a danger sign. And I swear to God, I fell out laughing at this. No, uh, no wonder Kubrick made us Danny's finger instead. This is fucking hilarious. Unfortunately, Danny can't read yet, so Tony must use pictures to warn Danny away from the Overlook Hotel. And it's killer fire hose. No, really, a killer fire hose. Oh, dear. Uh, Cortland, with his awful flickering eye acting, then has another vision of his dad carrying a croquet mallet, hunting him down in the hotel. Just then, Jack comes home, snapping Danny out of it. And note, uh, Jack is driving a v red VW Bug and not a yellow one as it was in Kubrick's The Shining. However, in the passenger seat, instead of groceries, does Danny see a bloodied mallet with brain matter on it and freaks him the fuck out. Just before leaving town, Jack calls his sponsor and then looks into a bar, seeing a barfly look at him with a de demonic grin on his face. Ooh, get in. Driving out of town to the hotel, does the movie almost do a shot-for-shot -shot copy of Kubrick's helicopter shot from The Shining? They stop a, a sneak look, overlooking Overlook Hotel, and Tony floats beside Danny again as he warns him about the hotel. Okay, now see... I can see my cubic cutness. This is hilarious and may work on page, but does not work on screen. Every time Tony's shown floating about, I crack up. This is hilarious. Finally arriving at a hotel with its spooky hedge animals. Yeah, right. Important for much later. At 35 minutes in, an utter tedium, do we meet Dick Howard played by Melvin Van Peebles, father of Mario Van Peebles. Dick takes Danny outside to warn him of the hotel ghosts and demons, then uses his own psychic powers on him by talking to him telepathically. 
Okay, this quote, shine scene, is supposed to set up stuff for much later, but Dick is coming off a little bit creepy here. And spot Dick's quote, sweet from the honey bee, car, in 1959 at Plymouth Fury, just like Christine, a movie I'm covering next year also. As Danny shows off his psychic powers to Dick, he blows off the car's taillight, and indeed gives Dick a bloody nose. Unlike Kubrick's Shining, where Dick shows Danny and Wendy around, here it's Watson that shows Jack and Wendy around. As they leave the kitchen, doors shut by themselves, and a dun dun dee! The ghosts are doing it! Oh, spooky! Uh, outside, yet more doom talk from Dick and Danny, such as room 217. However, Dick tells him it's just pictures in a book and they can't hurt him. With Watson hightailing out of there, it's down to Dick to show the Tornaces their room for the winter. Note on the second floor. Does Danny see spooky stuff such as a bloody Dax and brain matter splatter on the walls? Creepy, right? Uh, no. The ghosts are more annoying in this than scary with flickering lights, opening and closing doors, moving the porch swing, etc, etc. Nothing you'd call the Ghostbusters for, hmm? Days later, Jack is fixing the roof and he comes across a wasp mess with its piss poor CGI wasps. So Jack gets a bug bomb and kills them all much later that day when he returns with Danny from the store. Here, Jack hands over Danny the empty wasp nest, and why would you want a bloody empty wasp nest? And that night, as Jack takes his play, Wendy helps Danny with his reading and then puts him to bed. As Danny brushes his teeth, does he get another vision of Tony? So Wendy, the ever overprotective mother, gets Jack to break down the door, and we see Danny in a trance talking about axes and shotguns. Much later that night, as the family sleep, do the ghosts prowl, turning on lights, slamming doors, generally being fucking annoying. The ghosts bring back the wasps and Danny is stung multiple times. This adds yet more tension between Jack and Wendy and they have another bloody fight. However, Jack wants to take pictures to sue the bug bomb company. Jack puts the nest outside in the freezing cold to kill it yet again. The ghosts want to play some more by pulling all the chairs off the dining room tables and this goes bloody nowhere. We then get shots of the outside and the swings are moving by themselves. And Dundee, the swings are moving by themselves. Ooh, spooky. And that's part one. Got to say, if I was watching this, I would not come back for part two. Nothing happens, only quote spooky stuff like doors opening, lights turning on and off, etc. etc. This is not scary, it is just dull and tediously boring. And I get slow suspenseful build up, but hedge animals aren't scary, nor is croquet, so quit it, king. Ugh. Part 2 opens up on an AA meeting while Wendy takes Danny to the town doctor that gives him a full bill of health. Yeah, because getting stung several times is something to worry about, or is the fits, or indeed the invisible friend that tells him of the future. Nah, he's perfectly fine, and it'll be $2,000 and piss off back to your bloody hotel. I will give this TV movie credit, at least in this, Jack actually does work. In Kubrick's Shining, all Jack does is sleep, eat, toss a ball around, and type. Wendy is one doing all the work, so why didn't she bloody snap? Ugh. After Jack empties the boiler, he snoops around the storeroom and finds it overlooks dark past, so decides to write about it. Jack hears ghostly whispers and starts to freak out, then imagines the murders, but we don't get to see a thing because this movie is cheap! With the first snow of winter falling, the ghosts decide to start mess with Danny by calling his name over and over and over again, and this pisses Danny off. Days later, it's the ghost in 217's turn to mess with Danny, so like the brave little sausage he is, he decides to face his fears, until Tony shows up, thankful not floating this time, to warn Danny off 217. 
not heeding Tony's warnings, does Danny get to the master key. However, before entering, does Tony scare him off? So, the haunted fire hose, wait, what? Menaces Danny by falling off the wall and leaking blood. Karen. Jack catches Danny returning the key and Weber does his best Jack Nicholson by menacing Danny. However, as soon as he does that, he pisses it all away and turns into a bloody wet squib. Days later, while Wendy tucks Danny into bed, does he see a red rum written on blood on his bedroom wall? You know what? Red rum, dark rum, white rum, just give me some bloody rum. This is sucking the soul to me. And I have another hour to go. And part three, chase this away the death of me. Ooh, weeks later, Wendy tries to spice things up in her love life by wearing a sexy lingerie. However, Jack hears none of it, only interested in Overlook's history and having a go at Wendy for Danny leaving his glass of milk and toys all over the place. Wendy has a go at Jack after he spurs her frankly unsubtle coming on to him. Yet more strafing of Wendy and Jack snorefest of a marriage as they have another 10 minute bloody fight. Days later, Jack goes outside to clear snow and the stupid hedge animals start to mess with him. Mess with him even. Including the miniature hotel and the playground as it gives him a croquet mallet. Ooh, get in. And I'm sorry, King, but hedge animals are not scary. Just take a weed whacker, a weed whacker even, to them and they're finished. Hmm. However, I do like the fact they can only move if you aren't watching them. How very a certain Doctor Who monster. Days before Christmas and with a major snowstorm coming, Jack hears his dead father's voice on a CB radio barking orders at him. Cut to Danny checking out room 217 yet again, this time entering it after a fade to black commercial break. Do we see Jack on his knees with blood pouring from his nose? And I guess he stopped chewing on Ashman's like the bloody Tic Tacs then. Uh, taking orders from his dad to punish uncorrect Danny and indeed Wendy. Jack refuses to do this, so smashes up the radio, except He's not acting scared or stressed, but acting drunk. Yet not once have we seen him with a glass or even a bottle in his hand. Back to Danny exploring room 217. Hearing ghostly whispers, does he enter the bathroom and he sees the rotting body in the bathtub. So he runs for his life, however, the hotel room door is closed from the outside. And note, the woman in the bathtub is Mick Garris' wife. And she's under some pretty good rotting makeup. Danny escapes room only to be dragged back in last minute. And I'm not going to lie here, even though I saw this jump scare coming a mile off, I even jumped. Hours later, Jack finds Danny took the master key from room 217, even though he's in the bloody manager's office and the keys are right there. So, armed with a mallet, does Jack starts shouting to Danny to come take his medicine and be corrected. This wakes Wendy from her sleep, and yes, you've guessed it, yet another bloody 10 minute fight. And meanwhile, Danny is getting God knows it done to him up on the third floor, or second floor even. After another fight, they both go up to the second floor and see Danny standing on the top of the stairs with fingerprints around his neck and staring into space. Wendy of course thinks this was Jack, even though she found him on the ground floor, nowhere near the second floor. Wendy screams at Jack, she'll kill him in his sleep, then runs off to call the police, but the phone lines are down. Jack tries to call the cops, but Wendy snipes at him, tell him the lines are down. Suddenly Danny snaps out of his trance and screams, it was her daddy, it was her! After Jack notices Danny's shirt is wet and he has lipstick on his face and indeed collar. Jack accuses Wendy of doing this and this adds yet more strife to the strained marriage. 
Hours later, Jack makes Danny a hot chocolate drink and then tries to calm him down by getting the truth out of him. He tells him about the woman in 217 and warns him of the demons in the hotel. Then he talks about his quote, shining. Jack doesn't believe any of this, even after Danny tells him of the ghosts, spectres or demons wanting Jack to kill his family and indeed have a drink. Cut to the boiler pressure gauge reading 140 Celsius. Jack doesn't believe Danny's story one little bit, so off he goes to check room 217. This starts yet another fight between him and Wendy. So off, Jack goes armed with a mallet to room 217. He goes into the bathroom and finds a lipstick tube in the bathroom mirror and wet footprints on the carpet. Jack hightails out of there as he sees the doorknob turning by itself but refuses to believe it, chomps down on yet more Ashman and Charles Jack Nelson again, starts shouting at Danny and doesn't listen to Danny's warnings yet again. Yet another screen match between Jack and Wendy. So, with the storm gripping and the torrents all but snowed in, does Jack go outside to smash up the snowmobile with the croquet mallet? Before he does, he has a vision of himself talking to Horace DeWitt about how he'll fail in life if he listens to his wife and indeed his little boy. Jack shows Wendy the smashed snowmobile and yes you've guessed it, another 10 minute bloody fight. Days later, Danny is playing outside in the snow and do the hedge animals start to stalk him. As is happening, Wendy somehow managed to get herself locked in the manager's office. So finally after 4 hours, something is happening as the barely animated CGI Hedge animals attack Danny as credits roll for part two. And indeed, part three starts. Thing is, if I wasn't just for this podcast, I would not bother coming back for part three. This is boring, and no matter how many times you show the hedge animals, they are not fucking scary. So, on to part three, and I'm not gonna lie here, folks, I went a bit ski with here. I went a bit do lally doing this. Oh my god, here we go. Part 3 opens up right where part 2 left off with Wendy trapped in the manager's office even though she's armed with a bloody croquet ball and it's a glass panelled door. Jack is in the basement looking at old newspapers and Danny's outside about to get eaten by the hedge animals. Finally Wendy smashes open the window and the door and escapes. She then runs to Jack for help and she trips over the ball and I swear to god this was an accident but was left in by the director as Demonia looks super pishy for over this gigantic ball. Running outside, Wendy and Jack go as the barely animated hedge animals are upon Danny. Now see, if Danny's supposed to be all powerful as a movie and indeed the book would have you believe, why doesn't he feel these things are coming? However, just before Danny is attacked, do Wendy and Jack come out the front door only to see Danny is perfectly fine. So the movie just pissed away all this tension and build up, well done King, Master of Horror, my Aunt Fanny. That night, Wendy is awakened from her sleep by the lift starting up itself and the sounds of a party. Danny runs into the room to tell Jack he thinks there's a party going on downstairs. So off Jack goes to investigate with Wendy and Jack in tow. And Jack doesn't believe there's a party going on, even though there's confetti and party masks in the lift, which is now stuck. Days later, Danny is snooping around again, this time in the ballroom playing with the cuckoo clock. It strikes midday and ghostly party guests menace Danny. So he calls Tony for help who puts him in another trance showing him visions of Jack carrying a mallet in his best deadite cosplay. This scares Danny so he calls out to Dick for help. So getting choked doesn't do it but 
seeing Jack dressed in an Evil Dead character. Oh, that'll do it, alright. Cut to Dick in Florida, flirting with a waitress half his age. He gets hit with Danny's shortwave pleading for help, so jumps into Christine and drives to Denver. Okay, he drives to an airport, jumps a plane to Denver, and then a snowcat to the Overlook. But wouldn't it be better if he drove to Denver? Only to be snuck in the snow, so Kojo comes out to give him some red rum, and Charlie McGee helps melt the snow, getting him out of it. Hmm. Except he misses the plane. Luckily, of course, because he's had Langley's on board. Back to the Overlook, and yes, you've guessed it. Jack is in the basement, pouring over old newspapers, and he wishes for a drink. So he hears a ghostly voice of a barman telling him the drinks are free in the bar. The next day, and final day, thank fuck, do we see Jack heading into the bar where the jukebox lights up and plays itself a song, how very maximum will drive. Just then the bar stocks up with booze and Jack helps himself to some Jack Daniels. Meanwhile, in the bedroom, Danny is getting a vision of Jack drinking, so investigates only to be menaced by a guy wearing a werewolf mask, luckily it wasn't a Furby. So Danny runs off and sends another psychic blast, which hits Dick while he's in a bookstore. Okay, I'm out of King Rivers for that one. And Dick is in a train station somehow, and let's hope to God this thing's on time isn't as fast as a silver bullet. Back of a look, and it looks like the storm of the century has finally hit, and they are now snowed in. So Jack is now good and wasted, the spirits start to mess with him. Delbert Grady, played by Stanley Anderson of Spider-Man 2002, Armageddon and Primal Fear gives Jack yet another drink, and tells him about his meddling wife, and indeed his snoopy little son. On to Danny just staring into space, Wendy wakes up to Danny telling her Jack is drunk and there's a party in full swing in a ballroom with a bloody band and everything. Cue Stephen King's cameo. Who does he think he is? Hitchcock as a band leader with flailing arms like an electrocuted octopus. Jack walks into the party in full swing and is picked up by a busty ghost. The two dance and we see flashes of her dead self, not the beauty she's pretending to be. Jack sees her true self in the mirror and gets slapped after he refuses her advances. Jack heads to the bar, and weirdly we are showing him in an empty ballroom, and we get it, it's all on his head, do we have to see that? Hmm. He's given another drink, and he is told he must kill Danny and Wendy in order to please the quote the manager. And who is the manager? He walks behind the rose. Off Jack goes to quote correct Danny, however he's too drunk and spends most of the day screaming at the top of his lungs, going from room to room, drinking every last little drink that goes leave for him. Cut to Denver Airport and Dick's arrival, but wait, was he in a train station? Hmm. On to Dick driving his rental car in the snow. Better watch he doesn't crash or Annie Wilkes will have to nurse him better. Back at the Overlook, Wendy goes looking for Jack, armed with a butcher's knife. She finds the jukebox playing one more for the road. She put her hope it's Jack behind the bar and not Kurt Barlow. Lucky for her, it's just the weak as watered down Jack Daniels, Jack. And after a quick scuffle, Danny runs in to stop the fight, giving Wendy a chance to brain Jack with a bottle of Jack Daniels. No baseball bats here, just a bottle of Jack. Danny has all the powers, yet he can't send Jack flying across the room Carey style. Wendy calms Danny down, and the two drag the drunk and unconscious Jack into the kitchen, into the storeroom and lock him in. And that's some strong seven-year-old if he can drag this fully grown 30-something-year-old man who's pissed off his brain cells. The two run off and hide and cut to the boiler, now running 160 Celsius, almost beyond danger zone. Instead of running away, Wendy cooks them breakfast. Really? So you've just had a fight with your alcoholic abusive husband and you cook breakfast? Right then. 
back with Dick as he rents a snowcat from Sam Raimi. What the hell are you doing in this? Hopefully you won't be killed by Isaac or Malachi. Cut to Jack getting mocked by Grady's ghost for being locked in the storeroom. Much later that night, with Dick speeding to the Overlook, do we see Wendy watching the TV while Danny sleeps? Really? What are you getting the fuck out of there not watching TV, cooking breakfast and talking to your drunk dickhead of a husband through the bloody storeroom door? Okay then, arm for knife, does Wendy leave Danny all alone to seek out the truth as the ghosts try to mess with her, but she tells them they have no power here, but I don't know spooks and spectres. Danny sees Jack has escaped the locked storeroom, then sees red rum written on the wall. She then hears noises coming from the bar, so checks it out and is covered with streamers and confetti. What, no balloons? I guess Pennywise was busy making them all float down in the sewers. The clock strikes midnight and Wendy starts to scream at the top of her lungs to stop this messing around, it's all in her head. Jack sneaks up behind her, armed with new not an axe, but a mallet, and menaces her with it. Ooh, scary. He strikes her with the mallet, wounding her in the guts. Then she's overran by a leather chair. See, no fair, Jack Nelson didn't need no bloody ghosts to help him fight Wendy. Mind you, Stephen Weber, bless him, isn't a patch on Nicholson. He tries his hardest, but he doesn't cut it. He even has the Nicholson haircut in the final 30 minutes or so. Fade to black as Jack menaces Wendy with the mallet about to go in for the kill. Cut to the boiler, reading 170 Celsius, way beyond the danger zone. With Wendy hollering to Danny to hide, he wakes up from his sleep and gets dressed, and then hides, really, he gets dressed. From pyjamas into dungarees and a stripped t-shirt, how long does that take? Five minutes? Anyway, instead of killing Wendy and hunting down Danny, Jack just stands there ranting and raving at Wendy about how she's a nagging bitch and Danny is an evil little pup that needs to be corrected and take his medicines. She tries to get away, but he smacks her in the knee and then crawling off, hits her again in the small of her back. However, she makes it to the croquet ball, makes it to her feet and runs into the office. And all Jack does is monologue to her, so she hits some square in the nose with the ball and runs off. And why didn't she pick up the mallet and go to town with him or even get a bloody fire axe? Oh, and Nicholas Spiro had me crawling the walls with fear at this, but Weber has none of it. In fact, his OTT acting is hilarious. Jack is now dead from a blow to the nose. Okay then. It's now stalking Wendy as she limps around on one leg. He's swinging the mallet aimlessly, just smashing into the wall. She kicks him in the balls and locks herself in the bedroom. So here it is, the final showdown, with Wendy nowhere to go in a locked room and a pissed off Jack armed for a weapon. It's the here's Johnny scene, but nope, not here, it's Boo. Really, fucking Boo. I fell out my seat laughing at this. All this build up, all the quote scares, all the tension for Boo. Fucking Boo. Uh, that's it, I'm done. I don't care anymore. I'm done. If King thinks this is scary, he's dead wrong. This is a pathetic, pale imitation of The Shining, and I don't care if it says Boo in a book. He could have changed it to something else. Hell, change it to bloody Ellen's dancing, Letterman's monologue, even here's fucking Jackie, not Boo. Wendy runs into the bathroom, locks herself in and arms herself with the world's smallest razor blade. Jack starts to smash in the door and almost gets in, but she scratches him on the knuckles of the blade. Ugh. No, little pig, a little pig, let me come in, and not by the hair on your chinny chin chin, and then I'll huff, and I'll puff, and I'll blow your house in. None of that, it's just boo. 
Grady pulls Jack away. Jussie was going in for the kill. To tell him Dick has arrived, Dick enters the hotel only to be brained by Jack with a mallet. Wendy, now out of the toilet, has to fight off Jack herself. Instead of killing her once and for all, however, he just monologues yet again, telling her he wants them to love the hotel as much as he does. Grady and Derwitt pull him away to find Danny and not kill Wendy, who is indeed crawling around on the floor after being hit several more times with the croquet mallet. So off he goes to hunt Danny down, leaving the injured Wendy, but not dead, and indeed the down but not out Dick. Wendy crawls to see if he's alive, and he is! Uh, Jack hunts down Danny on the third floor, trashing the place as he does by smashing every mirror, every door and every piece of wall he can, with no hiding in a maze, outsmarting his dad in this one, just hiding in the hallway as ghosts start to mess with him. Danny runs for his life until Tony shows him the boil needs to be dumped, the pressure before it starts to blow up. Jack finds Danny hiding behind an armchair, so instead of killing him, he monologues yet again. And why didn't Danny psychic blast Jack? He's already had multiple blows to the head, one more wouldn't have killed him. And back to Wendy, as she wakes Dick up and pulls him up on his feet. Now, some of her bloaty his head, you know, just not move him at all. Back to Jack, doing his best to scare Danny. But all Danny can say is, you don't scare me, daddy, you don't scare me. Same kid, same. Danny talks to the useless Jack out of his bloodlust. And indeed, he just turns into a blubbering, tearful mess. Danny tells Jack he hasn't dumped the boiler, so runs off screaming. This gives Danny the chance to somehow teleport himself from the third floor to the lobby, even though Jack's in the one and all elevator. Hmm. Wendy, Dick and Danny run to get Danny dressed for the cold, really? Instead of running out to the snowcat, does Wendy change his entire outfit? Meanwhile, Jack dumps a boiler, but Danny makes him undump the pressure and blows the place sky high. Before running out, Danny grabs Jack's play, which was in the office, not the second floor bedroom for some reason. Oh, yes, by the way, the bedroom has moved from the second floor onto the lobby floor. Okay then. The bell get away as the place blows up, all the ghosts melt, and the place burns down. Years later, an adult Danny graduates college just as Dick shows up, who is now Wendy's new husband. Turns out all along, Tony was the teenage Danny, as he sees his father's ghost standing on the stage with the sign off line, kissing, kissing, that's what I've been missing. Cut to the burned out shell of the Overlook, which is still standing after 10 years, onto a sign saying it'll be rebuilt to the ghost hotel as credits roll. Happily ever after, wrong! Wendy dies of cancer while Danny hits 21. And Dick dies also. This turns Danny into an abusive alcoholic womanizer who works part time as an elderly, helping the old to die and pass over gracefully. This doesn't sit well with a bunch of psychic vampires, and he's hunted down with a new super powerful little girl. Super powerful psychic little girl, that is. Anyway, back to this tedious, long winded, unscary piece of trash that has a ball to be called The Shining. This shouldn't have been called The Shining, it should have been called The Fighting or The Whimpering, because that's all Jack does in this. Never mind Red Drum, this is tedium. Nothing in this is a patch on Kubrick's Shining, nothing. And for all those people that say that Steve Webber's a better Jack, no, he's not. He's bug nuts crazy from bloody scene two in this fucking thing. I'm going to give this thing a 0 out of 10. This was just one big ego trip for Stephen King, and it fails bloody miserably. So anyway, don't forget to leave a like, follow and comment on my SoundCloud. Come back next week for Nintendo November, which is my look at bad video games.
movies such as Mario Bros and Mortal Kombat. December is festive funnies such as National Poons, Christmas Vacation and Santa's Sleigh. January is John Camptor movies such as The Fog. Check out my franchise podcast of Blade, The Omen, Ghoulies, Gremlins, Lost Boys and more. Also my solo podcast of V for Vendetta, Samuel Cuex, The Shining and many, many more. Follow me on Twitter at Here's Johnny's Pod and email me movie suggestions to Here's at gmail.com. And I thank you for listening if this is your first time or indeed if you've been listening for as old as two years. Thank you and keep listening and indeed spread the word. Now if you excuse me, I'm off to have some white rum while watching Kubrick's The Shining to wash this taste of absolute trash out of my mouth. A eh, bye-bye.